This is a continuation of the revival discussion and uh, a bunch of rabbit trails that I interjected. So please forgive the rabbit trails, uh, but it's some more content. Here you go. So let's just begin. So this is more revival. Yeah. All right. Give it to us. Revival is a huge theme in the Word of God in that the high points of God's people, their their histories, mm-hmm. is usually points of revival, like the exodus from Egypt, the conquest of the great uh, military exploits of Joshua and the, during the judges, or the, or the outstanding men of God, women of God, through the years, the times of Samuel, David, uh, Hezekiah, Uzziah, and then Nehemiah and Ezra. There are times of revival, and that's what the, the, the Bible actually emphasizes, are those high points. And then when you get into the New Testament, same thing is happening. Ministry of John the Baptist, our Lord, mm-hmm. in, his, in his miraculous three and a half years on earth before his crucifixion, was a time of great awakening for the nation of Israel. And then in the book of Acts, you have repeated remarkable revivals. The day of Pentecost, and then the chapters that immediately follow, where thousands of people uh, are part of a mass, what we would call, what sociologists would call people's movement, where they're all coming to God. And... uh, and there's a great excitement associated with it. When on the day of Pentecost, they were smitten in their hearts. Mm-hmm. And later on, for instance, when uh, Paul is at Philippi, the jailer comes in trembling and collapses. He falls down before Paul. And so there, there were great displays of emotion and excitement that happened. But the question is, is great emotion and excitement or that overwhelming sense of the presence of God. Is that really the true essence of what revival is? They certainly accompany revival. Yeah. But what is really going on? And the, the, the one point that we made in our previous session was that in all of these situations, you have the Word of God being presented. But not only the Word of God. It's not just just well-known things that we all knew about the Word, and now we're going to finally decide, well, I think I'll go along with it. It's Mm -hmm. more than that. You have new things coming up. Things like when Moses was writing the law, well, he was telling the people things which were totally revolutionary to them. And so throughout all the Old Testament, when these revivals would occur, they were at times when the Word of God was being presented in a powerful and fresh way. And it took on a power over the people. Like Jeremiah, he said, your words were found. They'd been hidden. Yeah, yeah. Your words were found and I ate them. Yeah. Like you eat a meal. I ate them and they became unto me the joy and rejoicing of my soul. Well, so, so Jeremiah was experiencing a personal revival. Yeah. And so uh, 
So we made that simple point. And I do think that a lot of our friends who love to talk about revival simply talk about it as, as this, this uh, inexplicable, overwhelming sense of God coming in a powerful way upon the people and, uh, and, and a lot of people getting converted in a short amount of time. And, and of course, that did happen, has happened in almost all the revivals. And so when you look at church history in recent memory, and what I mean by that is in the last 500 years, a lot of things we don't know much about a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred years ago, but we have good records of what happened in the time of Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and John Knox and the Anabaptists. We're finding out more and more, of course, but we we have good records of those things and biographies which are written in histories. So it was a time of revival. Yeah. No. no doubt. In which entire countries were transformed. But was it an inexplicable thing where, uh, for no reason we can discern, the power of God simply shows up? Well, would you, would you say that that, because you're teasing it, or would it be, would, do you think, because I think about there's an increase in orthodoxy, kind of a return to orthodoxy in mainline denominations now where young people are like, I want authenticity, and so they start reading their Bibles. And well, churches... When you use the word orthodoxy, you don't mean Greek orthodoxy. You mean biblical. standard biblical orthodoxy. Correct. Like a, a return to the foundational beliefs of Christianity. Yeah, so churches that are you know conservative or stodgy or not flashy seem to be actually flourishing. Right. And, and major denominations... You know, there's this gutting that is happening to them, um, but we're. It seems like there is a revival. Yeah. Is but it's nothing new. It's nothing special. It's just hey, read the Bible regularly. And well, so, do you think that's what these historic revivals were characterized by? A lot of people who confess Christ or profess, you know, faith in. Well, you you bring up a really good point that in the revivals that have occurred, they've been returned to foundational principles of Christianity. Martin Luther was a theological conservative, and so were the other reformers that worked at his time. The Mm -hmm. Puritans were theological conservatives. They were not liberals who were, the, the, the prominent Puritans were not liberals who didn't know quite what they thought about the Holy Trinity, didn't know quite what to make out of the virgin birth, had a low view of the Word of God, mm-hmm. uh, in, that that was not the case. These In all these revivals, and you look at the time of uh, the Reformation, the Puritan awakening in England, the Covenanters' work in Scotland, over in, and I... Of course, I'm th- speaking a lot of the English-speaking world here. Yeah. But during the time of Jonathan Edwards and and John Wesley in the 1700s, and then the work that happened in the 1800s, and notably we think about people like uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon and D.L. Dwight L. Moody. Mm-hmm. So they were two prominent people in the 1800s. But there were a lot of other 
very effective men who were theological conservatives. Okay. And as far as I can tell, there has never been a really real evident spiritual revival occurring as a result of theological liberalism. Interesting. It's never happened. Now you just go back through the histories. And how can it happen? So that, that just uh, backs up your point. What about Christian it, rock and roll? I mean... Well, if they're, <laughs> if they're returning to... You know, the term rock and roll is used <laughs> widely. It's a big umbrella term. Yeah. Like, like they would talk about the Beatles singing rock and roll. But now when we go back and listen to them, they don't at all sound like heavy metal. No. No. They're, a lot of their stuff is like a ballad. Yeah, super tame. Yeah, it's very tame. So, so I, uh, what you term as rock and roll, I don't know. It, some people just use the term rock and roll for anything contemporary. True, true, yeah. So I, I'm not going to make a comment about yeah, sorry, what to like, make out of rock and right. roll. It, that's a, that <laughs> is a real rabbit trail. Man, that was, that was a go-nowhere <laughs> well, so there's areas where there's been fruit in 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 that, you know, in music. Oh, I think I think, but oh, maybe not a revival. So well, certainly, yeah. if if the Holy Spirit is enlightening people to write really good music back in the 1700s, in the 18, well, back in the 1600s, if you if you care, and throughout the centuries, is he did he stop enlightening? talented people to write good music. No, I, I, I'm fully expecting good, solid Christian songs that will be sung by the whole church. And many of them are so good, you think it will also be singing them in heaven. They, they sound that good. Yeah. But Fanny Crosby wrote 8,000 pieces of poetry. 8,000. Yeah, yeah. She was a very prolific uh, writer, and many of her po much of her poetry, or a lot of poems she did, were put to music. Mm -hmm. Of which, in a general contemporary hymn book, you'll have a few Fanny Crosby songs, and uh, Charles Wesley was in the habit of writing a poem every morning. Every that was part of his daily devotion. Get, Get up it. in the morning to write a poem, of which a few are currently being sung. He wrote in the 1700s. Yeah. So, so, uh, but these guys who have written hundreds and thousands of of poems, not everyone, not everyone has become a hymn of the great, a great hymn of the church. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff being written today, which is never going to be a great hymn. It just won't. Yeah. But there are some that will, mm -hmm. right? Some of Fanny Crosby's have been. In fact, she's quite prolific as far as great, great thoughts and great hymns, yep, yep. great Christian songs. And the same with Charles Wesley or Watts, Isaac Watts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, so I think that's the way to look at it. And we'll apply the same test to these other songs as we have to the old hymns that 
We just look at them, we say, is it biblical? Is it singable? Is it good poetry? Yeah. Some of these things that they're totally orthodox and they're they're great theologically, but they're not singable. Yeah, we should do a separate we should do an episode on music. Yeah, yeah. That is a big idea and it's so exciting when you think about great Christian music. Yeah. And how, what it does, it is the emotional outlet of the church of God. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a way for us to emotionally express our appreciation and our love for the Lord. And I, I'm so excited when I hear the Lord's people just lifting their voice and, and they stand up yeah. and, and they raise themselves and they fill their lungs. It's just, I just think it honors God. Yeah. Yeah. That is good. All right. So, yeah, sorry. Old revivals are always characterized by theological conservatism. Yeah. That's a great point to make. And that in returning to the Word of God, the thing that creates the excitement that causes people to be so overwhelmed Mm -hmm. is revolutionary ideas being expressed. So for Martin Luther to say, the, the, taking the verse from Habakkuk, which is quoted so often in the New Testament, quoted in Romans, quoted in Galatians, quoted in Hebrews, the just shall live by faith. Mm. And then ever emphasizing how we are justified by faith and emphasizing also the solas, sola scriptura, the word of God alone is yeah. our standard for all matters of faith and practice. Mm-hmm. Grace alone. God saves us by grace alone, by faith alone. What's sola good? scriptura, sola gracia, sola fide. Gracia. Those funny. ideas so encapsulated, it's, it's like John 3.16. It's, it's we say it's the word of God in a nutshell. Okay. It, a, a walnut has all the potential to become a great tree, right? Yeah. And so oftentimes in Scripture you'll have these encapsulated statements. Yeah, and in a way and that's what Martin Luther was able to provide for the people. Okay. In, a, in simple ways, but in revolutionary ways. And when it came across to them mm-hmm. and they figured out what it meant... Like the idea of the priesthood of all believers, that every every believer has immediate access to God, and every believer can read the Word of God for himself with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Not only has the privilege to know the Word of God, but also has the obligation to study it. Yeah, yeah. Because the idea of the priesthood of all believers that was taught in the time of the Reformation is that every every Christian is obligated, has a duty to get himself into the Word of God. Yeah, well, in the first century, too, it was taught. Absolutely. It's and not a new idea. Deuteronomy. Yeah, it it's not a new idea at all. Yeah. But, it had, but here you have plain teaching in the Word of God, which had been so covered over by the rubble of ceremonialism and ritual and church hierarchy it's like in the days of Isaac when Abraham, his father, had dug deep wells. 
But the Philistine neighbors, who, who were rivals to Abraham, they came along, they found these wells, and they filled them up with rubble. They threw their junk inside those wells. Mm-hmm. And then Isaac later came along, and he says, and he said, I'm going to redig those wells. I'm going to pull all of the stuff out of it. And that's what happened in the time of the Reformation. Mm. You had layers and layers of ritual and ceremony, and every one of these rituals and every one of these ceremonies that had been added on through the centuries had theological significance. They were, they were ideas. Mm-hmm. wasn't just little add-on attractions that they, they had, like, well, it'll, it'll make our church service a little more interesting if we have some holy water at the entrance and we sprinkle that, or <clears throat> we have the visible images and all the things, all the things, the trappings of worship. It wasn't just that it was an attraction, there was theological ideas associated with it, hmm. which ran counter to the ideas of the Reformation. Hmm. Faith alone, grace alone, scriptures alone. Yeah. We could say counter to the Bible, the plain statements of scripture. Yeah, yeah, it was running contrary to scripture. And, of course, I'm giving the re- Reformers uh, the benefit of saying that they were biblical. Uh, the Reformers made mistakes, and they stopped short. You know, one of the problems they had was that they didn't want to be looked at as as if they were becoming like a false cult. Okay. So when they left the Roman Catholic Church, they often did it hesitatingly because they loved the church. They they were raised in the church. Martin Luther was a son of the church. Mm-hmm. And and he knew that the church of Rome taught many things which are true and right. They believe in the Holy Trinity. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. They believe that uh, God created us all. They believe that we're all sinners yeah. by nature the and that we need Christ. to be saved. Yeah. You know, they believe all a lot of the foundational things that we all believe. And so in leaving the Catholic Church, they were careful to, to want to say, we're not leaving Orthodox Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so they took up swords to look just like the Catholics. <laughs> no, actually. Well, well, in 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 what they did then, there was a tendency to go along with some of the policies that the Roman Catholics had. And one of them that you mentioned is that they carried on with the state church relationship idea. The Roman Catholic system was such that they ruled over nations. Oh, yeah. The Pope would actually crown the king of Austria, for instance, hmm. or, or the king of Spain. And, and um, he would be at the coronation, the Pope would be at the coronation of the king of France. Hmm. That was the way it was in those days. And, and so it was as if he ruled over nations. Yeah, yeah. Now the reformers didn't rule over the countries that they were in, but they sought the endorsement and the support of the, the government. Okay. So Philip of Hesse was a sponsor to Martin Luther. Oh, okay, yeah. You see, it, but it, the result tended to be the same, 
whether you ruled over them or sought their support, they, that the church, it becomes synonymous with the state. The state is the church and the church is the state. Yeah, and yeah. around most places around the world, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in Iran, the, the Islamic rulers are the government and the government is the Islamic rulers. Yeah. It's not like it's two different things. Yeah, it's all no. and seen that way almost universally. Yeah, in Hindu yeah. countries, in some Muslim countries, yeah. in, in some Buddhist countries, the the power of the religious organization is so knit together with the secular government. You can't really call it a secular government. Yeah. They're joined together. At least that's the way it was in the old days. Yeah. A friend was, his uh, son was born, they were in Egypt at the time, and on his birth certificate it says Christian. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah in India, there are places, not in every state, but in some states, where you have on your identity card um, uh, your religious affiliation. And if you are a Hindu, it may also state which, which caste you're of. Oh, man. So, so that's, uh, uh, yeah, that's an example of the, what is called a sacral state. It's a state where the religious organization, mm -hmm. dominant religion, is, is knit together with the government. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so that is not the way the Lord Jesus operated or the apostles. You see, they didn't run for office. They would, they would appeal to their um, citizenship at times. Like Paul would say, look, is it lawful for you to, to punish a Roman citizen? Mm -hmm. I'm quoting it. I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing yeah, here, yeah. not quoting it exactly. So he would appeal based on his legal rights. But you can't really say that that's the same as being part of a large political movement. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't really doing that, but... But so he would appeal, and the Lord Jesus said, you shall stand before kings. And that was true. The Lord Jesus witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate, and he talked with him. And later on, Peter and Paul and John and the other apostles stood before the rulers of their day. And they would reason with them mm -hmm. about things like righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. They talked with them about not only the issues of the day, but eternal issues. Yeah. And, and they used all the influence they had, but that's not really the same as saying that it was an ambition of the early church to be hand-in-hand um, -hand, uh, co-rulers yeah. in the state. They weren't that. They never were. Yeah. In the, I'm saying in the, in the early church. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So when the Roman Church came into power, they very much one of the characteristics was to form a sacral state in which the uh, the church co-ops with and and uh, totally joins with secular power and uses the secular power. And Augustine stated it. Uh, he was in a 
doctrinal issue with some people, and he actually came to use the secular power to enforce this doctrinal issue. Hmm. And he said, uh, Peter has two swords. Yeah. And looking back at the time when the Lord Jesus, he had said, uh, if you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy one. Which a sword, you'd use a, a machete, a knife. We, we carry a Leatherman in our, our pocket so that we can use it for many purposes. Yeah. It's not necessarily an offensive weapon. Yeah. The Lord Jesus was not saying, let's arm a militia and have a standing army. Yeah. If you don't have a sword, sell your garment and buy one. And Peter says, well, we have two swords. And Jesus says, it is enough. Is two swords enough for uh, 12 men to go out and fight? It's not much, is it? No. Not, no. So he, so he is not, I don't think, at all talking about uh, an offensive army or a, a standing army. But anyway, Augustine said, St. Peter has two swords. And by it he meant, Peter has, St. Peter has, the sword of the word of God, but he also has the sword of civil government. Uh, you see? Yeah. He, he controls them both. Hmm. He is the one who teaches us what the word of God is saying, and he also is able to marshal a standing army to enforce doctrine. Yeah. yeah. And so when you later on have the Inquisition mm -hmm. and all the horrors of the persecutions of the Middle Ages, you can thank Augustine for providing a doctrinal rationale for it. <laughs> but it's a wrong thinking. Yeah, yeah. And the reformers did not have enough backbone or enough wisdom or enough insight to stand against it. Now, they went along with it. But it was later in the time of the Puritans and then in the time of the Great Awakening, later on, later on, where the believer is under persecution quite often by the civil state. They realize how wrong that is. Hmm. Now, in America, the whole idea of church and state is like, they're separate. Like, we, yeah. we think that's, what? How could you? And so is that our heavy uh, Anabaptist, Quaker influence or whatever, right? I don't know. Is, is, that, is that why America is the way it is? Or... Was that even a reform? Because I, I wonder if the Anabaptists affected us more than the Puritans did, the United States. Yeah, the, the, the pilgrims who settled and in uh, what became the colonies, mm -hmm. and you mentioned the Quakers, they were both outsiders okay. to the places of power. Okay. Uh, a pilgrim is different than a Puritan. A Puritan was somebody who was trying to purify the church from within. He doesn't want to leave the church. He's trying to straighten up the church. Just like the reformers were trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. They didn't want they didn't plan on leaving it. Yeah. They were trying to appeal for change. They ended up getting kicked out yeah. against all their natural prejudices. So in the same way with the Puritans they ended up getting kicked out. Okay. Yeah. So, but but they didn't intend initially to be to leave. They th said we're going to purify the church. Yeah. Well, the pilgrims, they realized at the start 
that the idea of trying to purify as an insider or reform as an insider is a lost cause. Hmm. That Jesus was really not an insider. Neither were the apostles. They, were, they would visit the synagogue. Yeah. They would speak at the synagogue. But they were never trying to make a move to be an insider. There's hmm. a lot of people today who think we got to become insiders. No, that's not, that's not the way. And the pilgrims, so the pilgrims are taking a different tack. Okay. And I, I, it can be pretty strongly argued that if we were left to the thinking theologically of, I'm saying theologically, of the Reformers and the Puritans, we would never have come up with the idea of the separation of church and state as we have it here in the United States. Okay. Now, now I, I, be, I should be careful in what I say because in recent decades, people have interpreted separation of church and state as a, a way of, um, of censor, censoring the church. Yeah. So I don't mean it that way. I mean the more traditional view that goes way back to the framing of the nation and the, the more traditional view which prevailed in the United States for so many, really for centuries. Mm -hmm. um, and that is the what was established in places like Rhode Island and in Massachusetts with the pilgrims um, of a true idea of the separation of church and state. Okay. So, you know, that's that's radical mm -hmm. compared to what prevailed in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Both with the Roman Catholic system and the Reformation churches. Mm -hmm. All of them had stage, and they do to this day. Yeah. In Scandinavia, you have the state church. Yeah. In Sweden, in Scotland, in England, there's a state church. The, the Episcopalian or the Anglican church is the Church of England. Yep. And so all of them have that, and uh, I think they do. Now, maybe they're repudiating the idea in, in recent time, but they have for a long, long time yeah. at think, state churches. I think Norway has always been, yeah, they're Lutheran, except I feel like they did something recently that, yeah, they said suddenly now we're separated or we're going to be fully secular now. Well, the, many I of forget. these places will have a free church, like in Scotland, there was a move away from the state church of Scotland. Okay. And that and those people who broke away are called the free church. Okay. And and you'll have, I think, free church in in Norway or free Lutherans they're called. Hmm. So they're not part of the state church. And here in the United States we have free Lutherans. Yep. They're <laughs> well some of the old line Reformed churches like the Lutherans and Presbyterians that were originally f came over from Europe, they would like to perpetuate the state church idea. Yeah, well, that would be. There's the idea of theonomy, which I'm not, I'm not aware. I don't, I don't know thoroughly, but it's this right, kind of right theonomy, yeah, biblical government type thing. Yeah, yeah, Rashtuni was a proponent of that and wrote 
series of commentaries in which he tried to apply the law of Moses. How would we apply the principles of Moses' law to present legal standards mm -hmm. and, and build our whole legal system on the law of Moses? Mm -hmm. And of course, in actual fact, much of the original legal system we have here in the West does connect with the law of Moses. Yeah. So um, he has this argument that we ought to, if we we're a serious Christian, advocate for uh, coming under Moses' law. The, of course, the problem with theonomy is that they're saying, well, you have the um, uh, the moral law, like the Ten Commandments. Yeah. But but then there were other aspects of the law which are are not strictly part of the ceremonial law. So you yeah. have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and 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 they're saying, well, we don't need to carry out the ceremonial part, which is all the sacrifices and so on. Yeah. But we should apply the moral law. But the law of Moses itself does not differentiate between the moral law and ceremonial law. Okay. It's all really tied together. Oh, yeah. And so you, you don't have one without the other. Yeah. Well, there, <laughs> so is, there was that's, just like that's the a civil problem. law, like how to handle a rape case and stuff like that. that well, was... we can learn. We can make applications of some many of the principles yeah. of the law. But to actually ourselves personally come under the law, that's a different thing. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Hmm. All right, well, let's take a break okay. and then regather our thoughts and maybe this will become an episode or we'll discuss more. I sidetracked you from, <laughs> from talking about revival because I'm so interested in conflict. <laughs> yeah, talking about theonomy Rock and roll, and the reformers, <laughs> and why and, why, and how the separation they church and state did or didn't influence America. Sorry about that. That's fine. All right. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll cut it down for now. <laughs>